Because because yes. let's let's think about it this way. It's sort of it's like owning a, it's like running a small business, and it's sort of like running a theater company at right. the same time. Where just like you can you can decide. All right, we're gonna do a thing that involves everybody worshiping me and getting in a getting in a circle and giving me a big sort of trophy and just talking about how great I am. And then these two announcers have to sit there and talk about how great I am and a whole crowd cheers for me. I yeah. don't, how do you not go mad with power? It's more than that though. I mean, that happens. That exactly happens. But also, you know that you're not about to leave the territory and bring your belt to the opposing territory's promoter and say, throw it in the garbage on national television, which has happened. Um, the second reason is more valid than the reason you brought up, which is definitely valid and something that has happened a lot. You know, the, the Sheik in Detroit is a prime example of somebody who ran the territory very successfully for a long time and then ran it into the ground because he wouldn't change anything or take himself off the top of the cards, you know? Vern Gagne was kind of the same, where he was one of the greatest wrestlers in the world for a while. Amateur and professional. He was a proven commodity, and so it made sense for him to be the champion for a long time. And then at a certain point, it didn't make sense anymore. And no. he still stayed the champion. And then even after he retired, he would really only put the belt on guys who were kind of like him. It, and so he made... You the, mean in their 50s? Right, but also sort of traditional grapplers. Yeah. So he made the epic mistake of not putting the title on Hulk Hogan. Yeah. And then Hogan jumped to the WWF and became the greatest wrestling star in the world uh, of all time at, yeah. at that point. Hulk, yeah. Hulk Hogan, the inevitability, the thing, the concept that I largely had in mind uh, when the, the conversation where we started this podcast, where we had the idea for this, where, you know, I remember Hulk Hogan being such a star for so long i remember him i remember when he menaced the three ninjas yeah i remember when he nannied he in, those kids um right he was right he was mr nanny which was like a fusion of kindergarten cop and home alone sort of a little miss right. doubtfire in there something too. yeah so he's a real he's a real character now i did not put forward to you guys this episode oh let's watch a hulk hogan match what happened was we we watched Brett Owen, we talked about it, we talked about great matches, matches with a lot of history behind them. And this was something that came out of you guys a little more unprompted than in the past. One thing that I think is particularly interesting about this match is the crowd reaction. And what it's known for, and this is sort of the official company story is that the crowd reaction that they got wasn't what was expected. They didn't really expect the crowd to get completely behind Hulk Hogan and actually even against The Rock. But watching it back again, I was thinking, you know, it seems like they actually knew what was going to happen to a large extent. Maybe maybe not completely to that extent. I but bet you Hogan and The Rock knew what was going to happen. Yeah, that's. I guess. I guess maybe that's the thing, is that, you know, when you see Hogan come out, and you see his reaction to the fans, in a sense, it's he looks surprised, but he looks kind of, you know, acting surprised. Now, so this is a, is this an example of a, of a turn? Does, does somebody, because I was very sort of. unclear on the moral position of the two. Hulk, Hogan seemed like a villain here. He seems like a, a villain in, in life in a lot of ways. <laughs> You're listening to Contesting Wrestling, the podcast where I, a man with no credentials of any kind, 
demand that two of my close friends justify their major life choices to me. Um, we do that in the form of wrestling, but it uh, it goes a lot deeper than that in terms of my inability to enjoy things and my bafflement at uh, this art form, I guess, that they that they really love. Wow, that was a lot deeper than I expected this time. Yeah. Well, get ready. Get ready. This is the first this is the first time we're recording this in the late afternoon. Yeah. So which is almost the witching hour for me because I'm in early middle age and I don't stay up very late anymore. It's the summer when we're recording this now though. Yeah. So it's still like totally light outside. Yes, yeah. Oh, I actually have to wait for it to get dark to go to bed because I want I start getting the urge to go to bed before the sun goes down, but wow. I'm too ashamed. I'm too ashamed. Anyway, so this is Contesting Wrestling, the podcast where we talk about the things that fans love and the things that normal people really don't care for about normal. the world's most popular form of simulated combat. Well, that was loaded. Sorry. I'm not sorry. No, you know what? I'm not. This is the point of this. This is why I'm here. This is what we're here for. Tell them your name. Yes. My name is Evan Burke. I'm a writer. It Uh, doesn't. It does. No, wait, no. Let's go. Let's go. It doesn't matter what your name is. We are going to be watching a match involving The Rock today. Exactly. And man, uh, I, I really I enjoyed this match for all the shit that I just talked up front. Yeah. I, I had a great time watching this match. My co-hosts can introduce themselves. Well, my name is Doc Diamondfire. I've been involved in professional wrestling for about 10 years. Uh, I've trained with Johnny Rods. I've trained with uh, Mike Quackenbush at Chikara. I've had matches. I've done commentary. I've done ring announcing. I've done music. I've done a little bit of everything. I'd like to say I know a little bit of everything. And that's what I uh, bring to this uh, this show I'm Dr. Ben Abelson. I've done very little other than teach philosophy and watch wrestling for my most of my life. So sang in a couple bands. Look, yeah, yeah, a little rock and roll. Look, yeah. for, for all my upfront saltiness here, I mean, the core of this is that I do really respect you guys. And when I go, when I have gone and seen professional wrestling live, it's hard not to be impressed by all of the individual components of wrestling. And so while I've always been sort of baffled by it, I've also always been a little baffled by how baffled I am by it because it seems like maybe I should enjoy this. Something just, uh, the pieces just don't fit. Something something like that. So that's the journey that we're on for this podcast. And today we are doing a very historic, what was presented to me as a very historic match. A real, which seemed to me to be a very torch-passing kind of situation. Oh, yeah. Uh, we're going to be watching The Rock versus Hulk Hogan. Hollywood Hulk Hogan. Hollywood Hulk Hogan from WrestleMania 18, or uh, I believe it, the n- proper nomenclature for it was WrestleMania X8. Is, is that true? That's right. Yeah, WrestleMania that... X8. Was this during the rise of the X Games or the XFL? Sorry, or it was, was it was 2002, so X was was real big at yeah. the time. It was kind of the the end of X, though. I think. Yeah. Really, like 98 to 2003 yeah, was yeah. the heyday of. That stuff letter. was getting less X. The edgy, the edgy half decade, the most, right. ex- the extreme Mountain Dew presents the turn of the millennium. As soon everything would become I, and that's a whole other flavor. And now it's Z, right? I guess. I, or I it's know. Generation Z. I don't know the um the final the final generation. Well, so weirdly, just, Gen just... Gen X sort of uh, preceded X, the 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 heyday of X. Right. Well, again, the X-Men were popular. I think just sounded cool. It sounded like... It's always uh, sounded you know, cool. Yeah. yeah. 
I, I think the purpose of Generation Z, uh, as, as one of them explained it to me, is to stop the rest of us from yeeting the earth into the sun. And I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I can infer it. I am married to somebody who works in a high school. Oh, boy. And, uh, so does she know how to yeet? Well, that's so I asked her, I was like, oh, do you hear the kids say yeet all the time? She's like, what? I'm like, don't they say that's what the internet memes made by other millennials have taught me that Generation Z says yeet. And she was like, never heard that. But I'm, then I'm so out of touch. I didn't even I haven't even heard of that. I don't I didn't know. that. Oh, it's yeet a, was a I, thing. Well, that's it's the, a thing. It's well that I don't know now, though, because I have no evidence that they say it. And then and, and I deal with 18 year olds on a regular basis. They haven't yeeted at me. Well, that's so then I another day I made a joke about something being a weird flex. And she was like, oh, you sound like all the kids at school. And I was like, what do you mean? That's another thing I learned from the Internet that I thought was humorous. And she was like, weird. That's a thing that they say constantly, at least in this one place that she works at. It must be a regional thing. And I, they call people fam. Yeah, fam, like family. Yeah. And like squad goals are a thing. I don't, well, I don't have goals, so that's harder for me to relate to. Well, that's the X and the Xennial, I think. Yeah. Not having goals. Yeah, we, st- we still have a bit. We can't, are, can't experience the futility of your goals being impossible if you don't have any goals in the first place. We're, we're, we're flavored with uh, some of that Gen X nihilism if you're born in the, in the early half of the 80s. Um, yep. So speaking of nihilism, I will say I knew, obviously knew who Hulk Hogan was because nobody didn't know who Hulk Hogan was. I did not realize that he had this whole thing where he came back and had differently colored facial hair, oh, yeah. which is a very bold choice. So Hulk Hogan was the biggest WWF star of the 80s. I'll try to do this as quickly as possible. Hulk Hogan was the biggest wrestling star in the WWF, specifically in the 80s. Somewhere around 92, 93, he started to step aside a little bit, do movies more. In 1994, he actually left the WWF for their competitor, WCW, owned by Ted Turner. He could have a more limited schedule. They... Paid him a shitload of money. Millions. Did he ever make a good movie? Or any of them good? He, he got to make that uh, TV show Thunder in Paradise that, that was, was on okay. TBS. I think Suburban Commando is kind of good. He never made like a really good movie. Yeah, he never he never did an It's Oscar not like turn. after the first few action movies The Rock was in that he made Be Cool and everyone was like, oh, there's something to this guy. It's like, no, Hulk Hogan only ever played Hulk Hogan or some permutation of Hulk Hogan. Quentin Tarantino says he's only going to make one more film and then yeah. retire, so I bet he's going to... He's going to finally reach out to Hulk Hogan and get him in that dramatic role we've been expecting. There you go. I mean, there was no holds barred. There certainly was. There certainly was. That was the biggest, uh, the most prominent vehicle for Hulk Hogan as a wrestler was Hulk Hogan in No Holds Barred. Which, you know, if you're into 80s camp, I mean, it's fantastic. But it's not like objectively a good movie or anything. Also starring the great Tiny Lister as Zeus. No, Tiny Lister actually went on to have a heck of a career in the movies, playing essentially himself also everywhere he goes. We should watch some Zeus as a bad match at some point. He was a terrible. Was wrestler. he like like Zeus? Like was that his? Or did no, he, have a whole, no. Okay. he just had like he was bald except they left a Z of hair like shaved out of his the side of his. <laughs> and now and from head. that he, from that he was like okay I'm Zeus and he was nigh indestructible. Yes, you had to like attack him in the eyes to do any you, damage. Th- uh, that brings up I am still having trouble figuring out the um the damage level of like a lot of moves and objects because it's clearly working on at least somewhat video game rules oh, where yeah. 
they're like each thing has a specific damage level. Some things have more than others. Finishers I've noticed often are things that would not really be very painful in real life, but uh, do but do you know do however much damage you need to kill somebody. When it comes to finishers, it has to do with how well the wrestler has gotten the finisher over. Yeah, I mean, the Hulk Hogan's finisher was a leg drop. The Rock's finisher was essentially an elbow drop that was been delayed by 15 seconds. I forgot how delightful his finishing move was. I just got to say, yes. Oh, I, yeah. I had totally forgotten about that. I remember seeing that back in the day and thinking it was dumb. And now it's great. It's a great, it's, he's, a, he's a graceful, graceful man. The, gra- the great thing about this particular people's elbow from the match with Hogan is that he misses completely. On the actual elbow. He makes no contact with him whatsoever. Three inches to the left of the tricep. Just how he likes it. It doesn't matter at all. And that's another (laughs) thing about this match is that there's a few botches and they don't don't matter at all. All right. Um, All right. So, yeah. So he goes to WCW. He's a big star in WCW, but he's kind of stale as a character. Sure. Then they hire these other guys from WWF, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. And they, the gimmick is kind of like they're supposed to be like invading from WWF. And they did a pretty good job of making it sort of feel like they were. It felt kind of real and like not scripted and that sort of thing. And then they're supposed to have a third man, Paul and Nash. And there's a lot of speculation about who it's going to be. And it ends up being Hogan. And he turns heel. Not for the first time in his career, but for the first time since Hulkamania had been this. Big these phenomenon. are the two guys who show up. These are Lorenzo Lamas and Chris Hemsworth's dad that show up yes. at the end of the match. Yes, the, them. Bob Bob Hemsworth. So they form the NWO, and it's the biggest thing in wrestling. It really sort of kicked off the era that Stone Cold Steve Austin ended up being the pinnacle of. Yeah, this was before Austin exploded. By the way, yeah, by, by a good year. So then Hogan goes from being the greatest babyface in wrestling history to the biggest heel in wrestling history and if you see the promo after he turns the the crowd is throwing garbage into the ring and he was just such a vile awful guy so this is when he starts wearing black and he it looks like his beard is spray painted on yeah that's i i can't imagine how long that would take in real life he stands, you know, he's shown it. He stands in the mirror with a Sharpie and colors in his stubble piece by piece. So it's perfect because he knows the presentation is everything. Yeah. He always has. So I think at some point in WCW, he stopped being NWO Hulk Hogan, but by then no one was watching. Yeah. In, in 1999, the deep recesses of when WCW probably already should have been put down. Uh, he turns babyface again and, um, and it does not go very well. So once WCW does go out of business, Vince McMahon buys WCW in this incredible move where he bought his greatest competition and no longer had any competition and until this day he still doesn't have any real competition i bet that that i feel like his life has probably been pretty empty since that moment like i feel like he has not been able to really top that he lived for the competition yeah so has the wwe product in a lot of ways yeah yeah there's, there's nothing that'll stop them, so why should they try, yeah. you know? When, when Vince McMahon took over all of the territory, the older promoters said that he just ran everyone out of town. 
Vince McMahon's attitude has always been, well, my competitors never competed. They were part of essentially a cartel called the National Wrestling Alliance where none of them ever had to compete with each other. A long week at the office for any of them was two days. So I worked seven days and got better TV deals with a better product and they all just crumbled within a couple of years. And a lot of them refused to change in ways that Vince McMahon wanted to change the industry. They didn't want to be so cartoony. They didn't think merchandise was going to be such a big deal. And this feeds in a lot to Vern Gagne, as we were saying, not making Hulk Hogan the champion, not wanting to sell T-shirts and toys and like all of this stuff that ended up being the real cash cow for the WWF. Meanwhile, in the WWF, they were asking Roddy Piper, hey, can you punch Cindy Lauper and not really hurt her? The answer, of course, is hell yes, he can punch Cindy Lauper and not really hurt her in 1985, and the entire world starts watching, you know? And the Lauper was 100% down, by the way. She was great. I, I she assumed, got it. I assumed that Vince yeah. McMahon did not abduct Cindy Lauper. No, no. And they, well, no. I guess I shouldn't have assumed that. I no, hope. don't assume that. But the old, <laughs> the oldie wrestling promoters were like, we're not having rock and roll stars. They don't belong in a wrestling ring. So is there. Is there a concrete reason that, like, anti-monopoly laws don't apply to the WWE? Yes, because... Whoa, the... I was not prepared for how confident so of the... an answer you have. Wrestling is not really an industry unto itself. Wrestling is a form of entertainment. Vince McMahon considers himself to be competing with everything else on television, and he's right. It's a scripted show. It's a series of scripted shows. If all the sitcoms went off the air except one, that sitcom doesn't have a monopoly on sitcoms. Just another one has to be written that can yeah, compete with it. I guess so. Another company is about to start a nationally televised uh, show. By the time you hear this, it might be out. It's starting October 1st on TNT. Nobody is stopping it, and it's going to be competition. Who is it? All, um, All Elite Wrestling, AEW. Uh, that's a long story, and that might be worth us checking out the first episode sure. together. But a note on the wrestling slash entertainment thing. I was actually surprised when I was watching the um, video package leading up to the Hogan Rock match yeah. that the commentator, Michael Cole, talks about wrestling's past meaning wrestling's present. And I realized it's been over a decade since I've heard Michael Cole use the word wrestling. <laughs> because at some point, Vince McMahon handed down an edict that said, we are no longer going to talk about wrestling and wrestlers. This is sports entertainment. They are WWE superstars, not wrestlers. That's, that feels clunky it verbally. Is for an announcer to have to come out with like nine syllables instead of three. You're not allowed to refer to a belt. It's a championship. A belt is something that keeps your pants up. A championship is a title that you've won, which it was great the time Batista, who was the champion, got injured and they were carting him off in the ambulance and the dramatic line was just, where's my championship? Give me my championship. It's like, you are the champion. You want the belt. Give me the belt. It's a belt. Damn it, that pisses me off. I, I want a book about the WWE co-written by an economist and a journalist that's used to working in corrupt former Eastern Bloc states and stuff like that because the WWE, more than a lot of massive corporations, truly seems like a dictatorship uh, slash he, Vince McMahon is more like a, a Bond villain or a comic book <laughs> villain 
I, I don't know. It's, yeah. It seems like it's a massive functioning economy in which people enter and submit themselves to it. Like you said, you know, you made a joke like, oh, he sent, uh, he delivered an edict. But I mean, he is the Pope and the Council of Cardinals of this religion. In a lot of ways, that's how wrestling in general works. It's not just Vince. And it sort of needs to work that way, I think. I don't know if Doc will agree with me on this, but, you know, there have been wrestling companies. AEW might be an exception. We'll see. We'll there, find out. There have been wrestling companies that have been run by, like, a bunch of wrestlers, and they end up with the problem that we were talking about at the beginning of the episode where, you know, you have too many cooks, and they all yeah. have their own ideas. They all want to be put over in various ways. And WCW was like that to a large degree. Hulk Hogan had a huge amount of creative control written into his contract, and it ended up with a really shitty product because he refused to put anybody over him, unless it was his buddies. Right. Now, Vince, one of the biggest problems they mm. have now is that Vince is still the absolute head of creative in the WWE. He will. They have dozens of writers, dozens. They have like 30 or 40 writers. Vince McMahon will show up to the arena on Tuesday when they're going to film SmackDown, broadcast it live. The writers will have been working on it all week. He'll show up, read the script, and go, I don't like it, and rip it up, and they have to write a new show that night. To hell with whatever they've promoted for the show all week. And with fans expecting to see X and Y because they told us it was happening already. Now, come up with something new to please Vince. You are writing for one man. And that's one of the reasons why the creative aspect of the product has suffered so much lately. At least there is someone to make that final determination. Yes. In the end of WCW, and I think TNA is a lot like this, a lot of wrestlers talk about they didn't know who to talk to. They didn't know who to ask permission to do things from because the creative structure was so chaotic that they never knew what ideas were actually going to show up on TV. So I guess it's the same thing with any dictatorship, right? Like a benevolent dictator is good, <laughs> but most of them aren't. And if one is benevolent, that can change. So to, to finish up with the history of what's happening, when WCW went under, after about a year went by, uh, Vince McMahon acquired Hulk Hogan and, and Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. They started the NWO in the WWE at the time already, hoping that it would catch fire. Still WWF. Still WWF. Still WWF. At the very end. The very end. Very right. end of WWF. You're right. And uh, and they decided to bring back Hogan as the Hollywood Hogan NWO character because right. that was the last one that people actually remembered. And uh, it didn't work that well. There was already the WCW invasion angle, which crashed and burned, kind of. Um, so another band of invaders showing up didn't play very well. It also didn't feel real this time. Yeah, we all knew exactly what was going on. And even if we kind of knew what was going on when it happened in WCW, it was so fresh and different. Uh, guys that top had not jumped that together before. Anyway, this brings us all to WrestleMania. And uh, the two money matches for Hogan were Hogan versus The Rock and Hogan versus Austin. And they decided, and uh, Bruce Pritchard has asserted on his podcast, that the Bruce only reason... Richard. Yeah. I'm still coming for you, Bruce Pritchard. Evan's coming for you, Pritchard. At us, please. We so, got to show you him as Brother Love, oh yeah. the wrestling evangelist. I don't want to see anything that'll humanize him. For uh, me. Oh, it won't. It won't. Oh, okay, good. Good, it'll fill me with more rage. He is a great monster as yes, that character. Yeah. He, he watched um, a lot of uh, late-night televangelists and hate them, so there you go. So they decided simply to go with The Rock first. It ended up being a fateful decision. Hogan-Austin never happened. There's always been plenty of demand for it, but by a year later, Austin retired, 
And in a very rare case in professional wrestling, he actually stopped having wrestling matches after he, like, properly retired. There were more reasons why it never happened, but Hogan Rock was the big conclusion match that we ended up getting. And I think it makes sense. You know, they were both very much entertainment wrestlers. Yes. They're the two biggest wrestlers of all time in terms of audiences knowing them outside of wrestling audiences. Hogan does give a speech fairly early on about how uh, he's the greatest star ever and will be the greatest star ever. That did not age well. (laughs) Did not age well. They rarely bring him out now for obvious reasons. When they do, he doesn't get the Hogan pop anymore. He gets the same kind of enthusiasm that you'd give, like, your racist old grandpa at a family reunion. Like, you love him because he's grandpa. You'll sit there and listen to him for a while because he's grandpa, but you know he's not going to live very much longer, and it's probably for the best. Once you've seen your grandfather's sex tape, it is hard to maintain the same relationship with him. Well, I didn't watch it because I didn't have to. It's gross. Yeah, let's not get on about the Hogan sex tape. I had to. That's fucked up. I'll say, but like sex tape and racism aside, also a large portion of the audience did not see him during his heyday. And since they haven't really been showing his old stuff Mm -hmm. since uh, his, you know, all that stuff came out, um, you know, they haven't seen it in replays either. And a large portion of the WWF audience wasn't watching Nitro. If they were, they hadn't for years. Hogan coming back was a major homecoming for one of the biggest stars of all time. Then, yes, in 2002. Now, can we please not ignore The Rock here for a second? And it's a testament to how big a star Hogan is that I'm having to shoehorn The Rock in. Now, the longer I'm involved in wrestling, the more I like The Rock when I see his matches. He actually doesn't do that much, but he looks like he's all in motion. I, you know, one of my one of my thoughts that I had about him in this match is that of the wrestlers I've seen so far, yeah, the two that struck me as the best, um, as selling the best and having the most expressive faces are The Rock and Edge, mm-hmm. both of whom, obviously to very different degrees, but both of whom went on to have successful acting careers after this. Like, And uh, I, kn- I know you want to talk more about The Rock right now, but I would not undersell the uh, facial storytelling ability of Hogan either. That hangdog expression he gives The Rock after the match is over sure. and they're about to shake hands, I think tells the story as much as anything else they do. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Now, The Rock, the part of this context is The Rock came up uh, in 1996. They saw him and said, uh, well, they debuted him in 1996. They saw him in 1995 and thought, within five years, you see, he's going to be the biggest star in, in the world. And he beat that expectation by a couple of years. And he had just been in the WWF, just taking names and kicking ass and just doing the best. And then here's Hogan. It's just the next one. And The Rock the Rock comes from a wrestling dynasty, right? Yes. He's the first third-generation wrestler in the WWF. Uh, his father, uh, Soul Man Rocky Johnson, um, the first black man to hold a championship in the WWF, tag team championships with Tony Atlas. His grandfather on his mother's side, uh, the High Chief Peter Maivia, a Samoan... Um, 
basically the patriarch of the whole Samoan Yeah, the whole Samoan family. dynasty. Like, The Rock is related to Roman Reigns and Yokozuna and, you know. Nia Jax. Nia Jax, the Usos, the Head Shrinkers. All of those Samoan guys um, are, uh, are part of a large extended family. Mm-hmm. And The Rock was Every the- Samoan wrestler. In wrestling, with the exception of Samoa Joe. Yes, with the exception of Samoa Joe. You know, something that The Rock talks about in his acting career now is that he'll kind of will sculpt different bodies for different movies that he's in based on how he thinks that guy would be unrealistically buff. And it really strikes me that, like, for him working out is kind of like in musical families where you give a two-year-old a banjo and by the time he's 10, he's the greatest banjo player in the world or something. The Rock must be like that with working out if he is coming from a third-generation family because he is he has consistently been in not only the best shape that you've ever seen a human being in, but it's, like, kind of different every time. He'll be bigger in a Fast and the Furious movie than he will be for a more, like, serious acting yeah. role. I'm I'm into The Rock is kind of really yeah. what I got from this. And How can you not be? He was hotter in 2002, but I guess we were all hotter in 2002. <laughs> we were all hotter and less bulky. Being a third-generation wrestler as a wrestler and sports entertainer and all those other things, he also has this unnatural ability seeming ability yeah um but also his experiences on the miami college football team none of us can fill this in but from what i understand they're they were particularly well known for their trash talking ability and that's where he cultivated his great promo skill wow okay because like, so he was he was a villain initially. Man. No, first he came out as the blue chip, ever smiling, good guy, babyface. The announcers put him over as the next big thing. He came out. Yep, my daddy and my grandfather and the crowd hated him. They were like, "You're not shoving this guy down our throat." So then he got injured. He took a few months off. He came back, and then they turned him heel, and he cut a short promo, just saying, "Hey, I hear the chance. Die, Rocky, die. Rocky sucks. Hey." Rocky Maivia is a lot of things. Sucks is not one of them. And uh, within six months, he was the hottest heel in wrestling. I remember going to Madison Square Garden, non-televised events. He would come out and the crowd would start chanting Rocky sucks on the first beat of his music. They didn't have to wait a cycle to hear that it was coming. They just jumped in. Now, the thing about that is they learned from this. And they've learned that this is a really, really good way to create a heel. You first put out a ostensive baby face that you know the crowd is not going to accept. And they're going to turn on them first, mm. and then they'll be the heel. We've been waiting for them to turn Roman Reigns for about five years now. And John Cena for like 15. Because I, I guess a bad <laughs> face they'll really hate, whereas a bad heel is just boring, right? Exactly. Exactly. Like somebody who's trying to be evil and sucks at it is just kind of whiny or mean, whereas if somebody who's trying to be good and sucks at it is whiny and you hate that more. Nowadays, it seems like the only really effective heels are the ones who do really suck at everything. Because the ones who are actually good at being heels, the fans are sort of smart enough to start liking um, so they so they have this guy, Baron Corbin, who's just boring and he doesn't do anything cool mm. and he doesn't say anything funny or entertaining at all. And he's the top heel in a lot of ways. And a lot of fans are like, well, this is horrible and stop watching. And but I, I guess that's the only way to really do it. It's that- actually a big problem in the industry. <laughs> I would say that that, by the way, is a nice little preview for when we get into our bad match later, which yeah. was a um, 
Uh, I feel like I've already forgotten what it was and what we watched. I've watched it twice, and it's gone from my brain. Professor Abelson, do you remember what the bad match was? Yes, unfortunately. Um, I was there for it. As was uh, I. Yes. Uh, uh, Brock Lesnar and Goldberg at WrestleMania 20 with uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin as the special guest referee. Are, are we ready to go to go to that now? Uh, oh, no, I was no, just... No, no, okay. yeah, yeah. Well, we have to... We, we should talk a little bit yeah. about the meat of the Hogan. Yeah, yeah, let's get in. I just wanted so, to, I just really... It was a half an hour in, and we had mentioned what the sure. other match will be. So, one thing I find particularly interesting about this match is there's kind of the official story about what happened and what the match was and what it meant mm-hmm. and the story that it told. And the official story involves the idea that the crowd reaction was to some degree unexpected by the office. The, and, it seems and mixed. It seems like a very mixed reaction. Absolutely. And I think they expected a mixed reaction. Um, the story is that they did not expect the crowd to go so fully behind Hogan and against The Rock. Now, it's interesting to me because the narrative there is that there was actually an audible to some degree called during the match. The wrestlers, specifically The Rock, realized, oh, I should play the heel more in this match because the crowd is already going for Hogan. But watching it again, I'm not so sure uh, that they didn't expect that. I think the most iconic shot in the match happens right at the beginning when they stare down and the place is going bananas. 70,000 people on their feet and both Hogan and Rock. And this is the kind of thing that you can't really call beforehand. You have to hear the crowd and do it perfectly. At the same time, they both look in opposite directions at the crowd and then they both look at the other direction in the crowd. And just that, standing there and moving their necks, the crowd got even crazier because they all realized what a moment this was. And then as they back up away from each other, yeah. Hogan fires up just a little bit. Just a He puts his fists up and his chest out. And the crowd gets that much more <laughs> excited. So that, okay. So there are two things here. Yeah. Um, one is... I was thinking about what we talked about last week with how much weight all of these stories carry, all the narratives carry. And I feel like I could I could tell that I both know enough about wrestling to understand that these two guys are huge and that at this point in time, like sort of one is on the rise and one is on the decline. I could tell from the fan intensity, even if they there were times when I couldn't tell if they liked it or disliked it. I could tell that they were very invested in it. And then... I guess I don't know enough about Hulk Hogan to fully understand what happened when he, like, starts doing what I could only describe as, like, a dance as if he was at the club and somebody gave him a, an amount of ecstasy and cocaine that a man his age should not be you, doing. This you is could all tell my... the crowd knew what he was doing, though, right? Yeah, oh, well, this is all of my in-the-club experience that yeah. I'm basing this on. But he starts to, like pump himself and the crowd loses their minds <laughs> as if this s- strange like flurry of like i don't understand like i've never seen they hadn't seen it in how many years at that point like 10 years 10 almost. years almost in the wwf what is what is that so that is it's called, hulkamania that is called hulking up and it is the end of every single one of his matches when he was on top. The bad guy would have been beating him up and beating him up. And then they usually would then hit him with with their finish and go for the pin. And he would kick out and start shaking. 
so was he originally supposed to be kind of like the Incredible Hulk? Yes. Where that he like. In fact, they used to dra- call him the Incredible Hulk Hogan. Marvel sued, and for years they litigated <laughs> in court. And in the copyrights, it would be like Hulk Hogan, property of Marvel Comics. I can see Vince McMahon there, just like with fucking. You yeah. know, he's got two dartboards filled with knives that he's been throwing, and one of them is Stan Lee, and the <laughs> other's that fucking panda from the WWF. <laughs> And then Ted Turner was the third yeah, for Ted many Tur- years. Right, Ted Turner. Vince McMahon's office is definitely covered in dartboards that he can throw knives at pictures of his enemies. That and then, is- like, the NFL as a whole is another yeah, one of his big I guess, yeah. foils. But, yeah, no, I'm glad you noticed that because, right, that no, was one of the biggest parts not? of his <laughs> That's like, you know, that, that, that's, that's you, you, you've gone to see Led Zeppelin and they start <laughs> playing the first few notes of Stairway to Heaven and everyone knows what's about to happen and that's what they came to see. I, and the I big question so, yeah. was, after Hulk hulks up, can The Rock counter it? Because he's The Rock and most people, you know, know it's over. Hogan's gotcha. But can The Rock get out of it? But The Rock didn't really try to counter it. No. Which is, I think, what's really cool about the dynamic of the match is The Rock doesn't try to outdo Hogan. If he had, he would have ended up as a heel at the end of the match. Yeah. Um, the Rock reacted like he was terrified. Oh, no. Hulk's hulking up. My punches aren't working. I'll try continuing to punch him like everybody who's failed at this before. And so there was another, I will say, another big problem I have with the match is that a lot of, so I understand that punching and slapping is going to happen in wrestling. It yeah. felt like there was a lot in this, and it looks bad when Hulk Hogan does it. It looks very bad. Yeah, well, his joints don't work very well at this point, you know. I thought one of the interesting things was throughout the entire match, despite the crowd being behind him, Hogan still wrestles like Hollywood Hogan the heel. Yeah. He's choking him. He's like gouging his eyes. Oh, he's, yeah. he's doing all this stuff. And I, th- I think it really um, speaks to a, a topic that we've talked about in earlier episodes, which is the question of what really makes a baby face and what really makes a heel. And I think this match really gives you sort of allows for kind of a definition or um, or kind of criteria for that, which is the baby face does things for the delight of the crowd, whatever they are, whether it's cheating, whether it's playing by the rules, as long as it, they're doing it knowing that the crowd will like that, they are the baby face. Whereas if they do it to the um, dismay of the crowd, they are the heel. They had a problem for a while in that Kane was an unstoppable monster, and they wanted to turn him heel, so they had him start to destroy the good guys, and it didn't work. People cheered. So they had him start ruining the matches, which people didn't like, but they still cheered. So then they had him start to go to destroy people, and then stop, and then leave. And then the crowd was disappointed, because Kane wouldn't beat people up anymore. <laughs> he he became so good at wrestling that the only option left to him was to stop wrestling. Exactly. And then you have a guy like Roman Reigns who everyone's booing him, but he's not a heel because he is still trying to get them to cheer he's, him. He's just bad. <laughs> he's trying so him. hard. Um, I understand that the rules that they're supposed to play fast and loose with the rules, but Hogan bites The Rock's face <laughs> And then the ref's like, hey. He has till five. <laughs> he has okay. till yeah, five. He has to bite him five times? No, 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 no. five seconds. Oh, okay. Any so illegal hold. So he can bite him, then break on four, and then go back and bite him again <laughs> for another four. 
Okay. <laughs> That's, That's how it works. <laughs> I'm glad we cleared that up. So I think the, the <laughs> purpose of this match and why, why we're talking about it uh, with you, Evan, is that it's a match where everything that is done in it is slow and deliberate, essentially. But they pull it off so well. I have to say, I did I did notice that. Yeah. I was like, this is something that I normally wouldn't care for. And even I'm watching Hogan, and I'm like, I'm not even that enthralled by him and what yeah. he's doing. And I... And, like, they're punching each other and slapping each other. And The Rock, like, I, I'm more into The Rock as a performer, and he's doing all this cool stuff. But even that in and of itself isn't that interesting. And the things they are doing are not that interesting. And it all comes together. It's it's like the opposite of the problem I normally have with wrestling. Yeah. Normally, it's all the component parts are cool, and it comes together to make something I don't get. This, everything was something that individually I would look at and kind of judge or not really be into. And it all comes together and makes something that I thought was really great. But you didn't mention the key ingredient. What really makes it great to me and what's really interesting is the crowd. And yes, how they're reacting. That is true. And yeah, there's there there's this constant sort of ambivalent noise. Like it's like yeah. it, it's like a you know a song. Like it's something that a piece of music with no real harmony that just floats out there. And then unlike by the way, just the really awesome harmonies of the Rocks theme. Because since <laughs> I grew up in the '90s, I am a huge sucker for a one minor three seven four progression. Yeah. Um, five people are gonna get that. It's fine. Doesn't matter. I know enough of what you're talking about to place that onto the rocks theme and think, yeah, yeah that's yeah. yeah, it's very hummable. It has a little refrain after a couple of them that makes it fall off just enough so that when it comes back, you can appreciate it again. Oh and, yeah, and to get Jim into Jim Johnston, the man that wrote most of the WWF's music for 25 I, years. I, they there was an interview with him in a guitar magazine yeah. that I read in like 1998 that blew my fucking mind. I have to say, I did not realize that one guy wrote all of that. Yeah, even if a lot of it was bad. Oh, um, I did notice that Drowning Pool was uh, at this this uh, WrestleMania. <laughs> I don't care about anyone else but me. <laughs> like that was the song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which was Kevin Steen's theme on the Indies. On the Indies, yes, yes. Um, but uh, talking about music, and this gets into some of my own like personal philosophical theories about wrestling. Uh, sometimes I I like to think about wrestling by analogy with music. And this is what people, I think, miss about wrestling. So the, the analogy isn't perfect. But if you watched mu uh, a live performance of music with the sound off, and you're a musician, especially, or someone who really knows a lot about music, you could still watch a guitar player playing guitar by watching their fingers and be impressed by their ability, right? But you wouldn't be hearing the music, right? So I feel like something similar is the case with wrestling where you could watch wrestling without the crowd and see them perform the moves sure. and be impressed by how they perform the moves. But if you're not hearing the crowd, you're not hearing the sound. You're not, by analogy with music, you're not hearing the thing that you're actually supposed to care about. And that's really interesting. And that is the main subject of critical scrutiny. But are you, I mean, are you supposed to watch the crowd? Because it is, now, obviously, you are going to watch the crowd. It is inescapable that you'll watch the crowd and judge your reaction in part based on what their reaction is. But it is an art form that did not develop with that second, with that second layer. It was an art form that developed as a live event for the people watching it. And I'd say to that extent, it wasn't really an art form. 
Mm-hmm. It's only an art form. It's only sorry. I mean, you know what art is 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 a yeah that's, issue I, in and of I, itself. I think that that's been settled by uh, history and experts. So I don't think we <laughs> but, need to get yeah. But I think when you're um, critically assessing wrestling as an art piece or, or a piece of wrestling as an art object, the assessing the crowd reaction is an essential component of that assessment. If you're not doing that, you're enjoying wrestling. You're really actually being you need some people who aren't listening to the crowd who are just watching the wrestling to be the crowd that the other people are then listening to and critically scrutinizing. So you're actually you're not um, interacting with the wrestling as an external art object. You are part of the art object when you're just responding to what's happening in the ring. One of the big problems, once again today, is that it has swung so far into the idea that it has to be the crowd reaction the entire time that the meat of the performance in the ring sometimes suffers heavily because if the crowd gets bored for a few seconds, you have to do something or they will actually hijack the show with unrelated chants and you know whereas if you see crowds from like 20 or 30 years or 30 years ago especially and back they sound much more like a sports crowd there'll be an ebb and flow of cheer but there won't be a million chants there won't be like there won't be such sharp reactions up and down yeah how the crowd is changing and how wrestling is having to adapt in order to respond to that change is to me what's really interesting about modern wrestling what do you do when they're all smart fans like, what do you do when there are oh, no more yeah. marks left? You know, okay, I. <laughs> yeah. what if wrestling is going through rock music, while there is still a lot of great rock music out there, rock music as a, like, cultural milestone and cultural form is fading in part for a lot of reasons. One is that a lot of rock music did not stay culturally relevant. Society has changed in a lot of ways, all this stuff. But part of it is that the same thing that happened in jazz or one of the same things that happened in jazz historically in the 80s is kind of happening to rock music now where the critics and the narrative built by kind of the historians and the critics grew to the point where it all just sort of crumbled under the weight of it you know what i mean where like where you are so you are so indebted to the past and so torn about how to make something new that is still technically within the same boundaries as the past. The same. Yeah. yeah. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. The same thing happened in the visual art world. Um, I don't remember what year it was, but the philosopher Arthur Danto famously said at some point right after Andy Warhol, basically that Andy Warhol was the end of art. That art had sort of completed its story of becoming self-conscious with Andy Warhol, and there was that was the death of art. He actually said, and there was nothing else to do after that except really like get more and more philosophical in certain ways. Like you're you're doing philosophy at that point. You're not actually making art anymore. I want to point out that Andy Warhol was a big fan of the mid '80s Hulk Hogan era WWF. He got what they were doing. Oh and was a shit! Full supporter. Oh shit! Bringing it around. Bringing there, it right that is back A around. plus podcast material, he, sir. He saw that. Well, even then, Um, people were critical of Hogan because he didn't do a lot of interesting-looking moves, but he sure did get five figures worth of people to arenas every night for years. And you know what? Now I maybe kind of get it, where 
for the longest time, I was like, I, I feel like I need to be visually stimulated. That was my big problem yeah. when we first started watching this was I was in my head. I'm comparing it to like Kung Fu movies or something where I'm just like, well, it, I, how can I be interested in this? It's not that animated. And this is really, I, you know, I feel like to some degree got what can constitute an interesting and compelling wrestling match that maybe also still kind of looks like the ones I did not enjoy. Our bad match. I, I would just say we, okay. we should probably watch some classic Hogan at some point and see oh, how you feel about it now. Oh, I'm sure. I, I know that one day we're going to have to watch uh, Hogan versus the Ultimate Warrior because I've heard people talk about oh, that. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, well, we'll bring that up, actually. That is a really good segue into our bad match because I think our bad match is sort of a bad version of the classic Hulk Hogan Ultimate Warrior match. Yeah, yeah man. So this is a match that is wrestled by two guys who are putting you you gave me some context in that they were both like about to leave the WWE and, and at this people point. only found out that Brock was about to leave a couple days before not all the fans knew but all the fans at the garden knew and they really wrestle a match with the same energy that I bring to a job that I've put in my two weeks notice to and I know I'm not <laughs> showing up for the second week <laughs> and it's like day five yeah, wow, and I think, that's so spot on. Like, the contempt that they have for anybody what, that wanted whatever they had to offer. I felt insulted and bored. Like, I felt like somebody yeah. had, like, written a book insulting me and was reading it to me in a monotone voice after 10 p.m. and I had had some wine, so I was yeah. sleepy. The fact that the fans turned on the match didn't help that either. They, yeah. they tried even less <laughs> once they realized that nothing they did was really going to help. And what they really over. wanted was Stone Cold to wrestle, but Stone Cold couldn't wrestle. He had a bad neck. So as far as the story of the match is going, the crowd knows that Lesnar's leaving. Goldberg's also leaving. I imagine if Lesnar wasn't leaving, that crowd in particular, even though Lesnar, I think, was supposed to be the heel, would have been pro pro Lesnar because they were a smart wrestling crowd that likes wrestling, and Brock Lesnar is a very good wrestler. Okay. And Goldberg... Is not okay. So they so one of them is good at wrestling because I'm watching this oh, yeah. and it appears that neither of them are good at wrestling. Goldberg is definitely falls into the category of a man who looks too large for himself. Like looks right. like he doesn't looks uncomfortable. Looks uncomfortable in his body. Looks uncomfortable he, with those giant is. fucking like neck muscles, whatever you call those. During his recent comeback, he talked about how uh, to, he wanted to look like Goldberg the wrestler again, and he hates doing what he has to do to look like that. And everyone around him suffers because he becomes crabby because he has to get up at five in the morning and work out and then eat a bunch of meals that don't taste good and then work out again and then eat a bunch more meals that don't taste good and then go to bed and get up and do it you every think, day. A, lo a, lo a lot of guys, I'm sure that you have to work out like crazy, but there are a lot of guys in wrestling who seem to be in the kind of shape yeah. that... I aim for, which yeah, is yeah. like I I know that I'm I know that I'm not really gonna lose a lot of weight at this point in my life, so I just need to be a strong kind of fat guy, and that's that's what I'm aiming for in my working out. That's getting especially popular nowadays. Actually, the yeah. strong yeah. looking well, fat cause, guys. Because we're all Harley Race. <laughs> Well, be yeah. also, you know, you want your, especially your baby faces, should look like your fans. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say that it's just because we've all gained weight and none of us are losing it. And, uh, and we are, that, yeah. well. Us meaning our whole generation. I see. Well, it's just because we're getting older, you know. Yeah. But, um, so at the beginning of this match, you actually do hear some people cheering for Goldberg. And I think maybe they were hoping for the thing that Goldberg was known for and that he's pretty good at, which is squashing someone in 30 seconds. 
Now, if he had squashed Lesnar in 30 seconds, I think the crowd would have been perfectly happy. Unfortunately, what they get is this just plodding uh, snooze fest where they barely do anything for the first few minutes of the match. Just fucking walking around, looking at each other, like just a lot of casual strolling in this match, a lot of ambling towards each other, and then a tackle. up and do nothing. Yeah, like it starts... As it starts like a like this would be the f- a, a great first beat of a comedy sketch yeah. about two wrestlers that like can't wrestle or something like that or two wrestlers who are afraid to break out of a hold or something because they do and there's something very inherently comical especially about the the pose that Goldberg takes the lock <laughs> when they're locking up yes yeah. Yeah. The thing is, is if the crowd was really invested in these two guys and their beef and thought that they were these unstoppable forces that were finally meeting that motion or that that part of the match, the crowd would have been into. They would have been like, oh, who's stronger? Who's going to win this struggle? But since they already didn't care, they were like, come on, do something. Do you think it's just that they did not personally care? Like, do you think these two guys were just, I'm not going to fucking do anything? Because even if you're leaving your job, they presumably got paid thousands of dollars that night. They got paid very well for that match. Make no mistake about it. You know, I think neither of them, Lesnar was pretty young at that point, and Goldberg was never very good at anything. And I think at that point, neither one of them was really good enough to call an audible. To say, oh, the crowd isn't liking this. Let's go in a different direction. That, and I don't know, you know, what orders they got from the back, from the office. They might have just said, hey, let's just go with it. However they react, just do the thing you were going to do. Austin's going to save it in the end anyway. Yeah, I always like to say, really, it doesn't matter who got the pinfall. Austin won that match. It ends with Stone Cold Stunners all around, his music. And the crowd was happy to see that and then immediately forgot the rest of the, the match. That, the five seconds that it takes him to kick, uh, who even won? Goldberg? Goldberg won. Goldberg the guy, won, the yes. five seconds it takes him to kick Goldberg and then and then drop him is more entertaining than the entire match yeah. leading up to it. It is. By very much. Austin knows how yeah. to do that. I guess my point is, uh, fuck you, <laughs> that I had to watch this. I don't know. This is... <laughs> And so, I have nothing to say. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not actually upset with you, but I'm like, oh, it's okay. Oh, God, I'm like, uh, oh, I watched this match twice. I watched yeah. it twice. You fell asleep the first time. I did. You didn't miss anything, but you fell asleep. No, the first it was. Time. I had a dream that was a lot more entertaining, where I was in a house, but it like wasn't my house, but it was. That's not important. <laughs> what were you saying? No, nothing. That's really it. They <laughs> lock up forever. They don't yeah. do anything. Goldberg wins. Austin stunners them. And everybody else is better than this, you know? We'll show you some good Brock matches one day. Sure. Brock versus Daniel Bryan. Like, oh, oh yeah. Brock, uh, Brock versus John Cena Brock when he first John came Cena, back from UFC. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, even Brock Goldberg from WrestleMania many years later, where they did a sprint, where they yeah. just hit all their big moves right from the beginning, right. is a far superior match to I, this thing. I would hope they would both have the decency to be like, we need to undo what we have done. Goldberg has, in general, been very preoccupied. Whenever one of these horrible things happens, which has happened a couple of times in yeah. his career, he really wants people to forget it. He wants to do something else to make them forget it. And so right now, at the time that we're recording this, Goldberg has embarrassed himself in his match with The Undertaker. Oh, that sounds from one of the Saudi bad. Arabia shows. Yeah, I yeah. think we mentioned this uh, on an earlier episode. 
depending on what sequence these things end it up did, it did not go coming well. out in. And so they're going to do something with him. I think it's the rumor is that he's going to fight Dolph Ziggler at SummerSlam. No, nothing's been announced yet. That that is the rumor that's circulating. But who who knows? So we'll by the time out. this airs, we'll know. Yeah, it whether will it actually certainly happened. have happened by now. So Goldberg has had several matches like this where nothing happens and it's shameful and he needs eh, to make up for it he's later. He's not that good. Like, he well, couldn't yeah, that's carry Lesnar. That's my point. Like, Anytime he's had to do something other than just squash someone in 30 seconds, it's been bad. This is something that baffles me, I guess, about the wrestling business. How somebody can not only suck, but suck for, like, fucking decades. And people just, they must be rewarding him in some capacity, yeah. if Vince still wants to keep him on. Well, he, he didn't wrestle most of the time between the Lesnar match and, you know, 10 years afterwards. Sure. Initially, like, if, for a little bit on the history of Goldberg, he, he trained at the WCW power plant. They debuted him on television. He started having matches with just underneath talent that lasted, right, 30 seconds to two minutes. He'd hit the guy a few times. He'd give him his, his finishing move, and he'd pin him. And the crowd started catching on, and there was a big wave of momentum, and they started counting his wins for his undefeated streak. He went all the way up to the top to face Hulk Hogan for the title. He beat Hulk Hogan for the title. Then he was just the guy. And when it was his time to have the good matches with everyone else, you realize he was still a year one rookie and everybody had only ever told him how awesome everything was. And like, that's not a real good formula for long term success. And people are nostalgic for that Goldberg to this day. But it's like it's over. It's over. His shittiness, his shitty wrestling was also responsible for ending the career of one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, Bret Hart. Right. He kicked him in the head and concussed him so bad that uh, eventually Brett had a stroke and his career ended. Jesus. Brett's had it rough. B- Brett had a stroke. Brett had cancer. His and brother died in a, the ring. A couple of months ago, he, he was giving a speech at the Hall of Fame and a fan rushed the ring and tackled him. To which, by the way, the WWE roster then all rushed the ring and took care of some business. Those clips are really cool to find and watch. Most of his friends from his era are dead also yes. because they were all horrible drug addicts and such. Uh, yeah, not not to mention the various head injuries. You know, yeah. that uh, that would be a real bummer to end on yeah right get pulling it down to that talking about the the sadness this business but um i want to start getting to a thing where we announce kind of what we're doing for the next episode yeah. at the end of the first episode and while we haven't picked any matches yeah i will reveal the theme that i want to focus on for the next episode because all of this all of these injuries all of these horrible drug problems, these broken families, these broken men, these broken dreams. You can argue that there is one man responsible for all of this, for all the highs, for all the lows, for all of the horrific exploitation, and for bringing joy to the hearts of millions of children, like some sort of Santa Claus with collateral damage. Vince McMahon. I want to see, I, I, I have to see and understand, this is this is what we've been circling around, and I haven't even realized it. I need to see some Vince matches after this, because I need to see the man who who lets all of this happen, good or bad. But also does it himself, right? So Yes, th- I have to say. Yeah. And, and that's, so we'll watch, well, I guess we'll watch some of his matches, and, you know, he really, everything, he, 
nothing that he's asked anyone to do is something that he would not do himself. And I, I think it's an interesting question to what degree that mitigates his responsibility. I worked at a retail food store for a number of years, and the boss, who was a guy that everybody liked initially until you worked for him for a while and then you didn't care for him as much, he would make a big show, come over and like hop on register for a little while, or like he'd clean the bathroom once in a while. And at first you'd feel like, oh, you know, hey, the boss is coming over and helping out, and like it's not beneath him or anything. And then you realize, oh no, it's just a show to make us feel more, oh, I guess we should work harder at this menial bullshit that we get paid nothing for. So two things. One, it's interesting to me that your cleaning the bathroom motion looked like kind of a jerk-off motion. I, I'm wiping I'm wiping That's... something at this level. Ben, I'm wiping something have... at my waist level. I, with I interpreted a, with it a, as yeah. like mopping. Yeah. Ben, get a menial task yeah. job for once yeah. in your life, professor. <laughs> Mr. fucking, give me one job. Give me a Come job on, you've ben. had. What's one job Seriously, you've had? Seriously, hire both of us yeah. for lots of money. <laughs> I am a hero of the working class. He is a hero of the working yeah. class. I Doc just want two. money. Doc too. We've yeah, I mean, we worked a lot of the same jobs. We have worked a lot together. of the same yeah. jobs. That's true. I will I will not comment anymore on this particular <laughs> point then. <laughs> oh, you uh, all you just gotta beautiful. say stuff to people. Uh what's, and then, what's your no, what's your no. other point about Vince? Oh yeah. Oh, that he works harder than everybody else. I can see well that's in yeah. the in the company. He strikes me as a man who has no boundary between his life and his business. None. So I don't think that, you know, his like, you know, taking huge bumps or bleeding or doing all the other stuff he does is just this kind of performative thing. Mm. Um, it's just a, a part of it's doing the job do. as hard yeah. as he does it. He's there all day. He's, people who have worked for him say like one of his mottos is sleep is the enemy. Uh, he'll he'll call Man. you and you can call him. He's like, you can call him at two in the morning. He'll pick up on the first ring fresh as a daisy uh, unless he's in a meeting at two in the morning, which he often is. Uh, they say working for him is like one of the hardest things you can do because it's all day, every day. But it's always heartening because he's there, too. It's um, a lot of like self-made billionaires have yeah. the same thing. People said that about Bill Gates. You know, he wouldn't shower because he was working for 24 hours a day and stuff like that. Right. And, he, yeah. and he's and he's murdered every mosquito in Africa with his own hands. Yeah, he's, he's the now. only he's the only like billionaire billionaire. I'll have a few nice things to say about. He's like, well, I'm going to get out oh, of the billionaire business. Let's eradicate malaria. Oh, let me remind yeah. me to send you an article. You won't have nice things to say about him. Anymore. I'm sure I will. I I'm sure it'll just be bad things also. But yeah, I know myself. Yeah. Apparently it's really rare to find Vince sitting down. Yeah. <laughs> on. So on that note, yeah. this has been contesting wrestling. You should follow us on our new Twitter at contesting W contesting and then the letter w and you can interpret yeah. it as contesting whatever you want yeah yeah i was just i just forgot how long you could make a name on twitter that's right i typed in contesting wrestling and i got that because i'm a man in my early middle age and it's already showing we could be contesting watermelon yeah exactly i actually would not do that i support watermelon it's, I, I like it's watermelon delicious only seeded much. watermelon though i see no. watermelon freaks me out no yeah i don't need i don't that's no that's a watermelon that's filled with hubris instead of seeds i like i like a little hubris but too much is like it's bad for you i hope it is not hubristic to ask you the listener to go to our patreon 
at patreon.com slash contesting wrestling and see if there's some of that premium content there that you would enjoy and pay us five dollars a month for uh, give us that chingle chingle it is and we will then deliver onto you watch alongs bonus episodes uh anything else if we get popular enough we'll interview people and shit it'll be great That'd be fantastic. Uh, my name is Evan Burke. You can find my writing at evanburke.biz, and you can follow me on Twitter at evanburke, etc. That's evanburke, E-T-C. Uh, you can follow me, Dr. Ben Abelson, on Instagram or Twitter, uh, or both, at scribeben. And you can find my uh, some of my philosophical papers on academia.edu. And my name is Doc Diamond Fire. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Diamond Fire. That's at Dr. Diamond Fire. Um, you can hear me commentating various shows for Chikara, Ironbound Wrestling Alliance, Bronx Wrestling Federation, etc., etc. At me, book me. Thank you. <laughs>